0: Hey, it's Max. Uh, It's Friday, which means it is the end of our week-long series of interviews with this year's George Polk Award winners. We really love doing this every year. This is the third time, and uh, we've got one last one for you today, then it's back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. For this last episode in the series, I talked to Terry McCoy, of the Washington Post, Terry won the Environmental Reporting Award for a series called The Amazon Undone, which took an in-depth look at the illegal and often violent exploitation of the rainforest in Brazil. Terry reported the series over two years, and as you'll hear, it's both a climate change story, but also a true crime story. And over the two years, it became a quite personal story, too. Uh, so anyway, here is my conversation with Terry McCoy. Thanks again for listening to the series all week. And thanks so much to everyone at the Polk Awards for making it happen. Terry, thanks so much for doing this, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Max. Where are we zooming from? Where are you exactly?
1: I am in cloudy Rio de Janeiro right now. So, uh, in Southeast Brazil, we live in Ipanema so right along the beach so definitely not uh not a hardship posting but uh, <laughs> but you know it,
0: it's exciting nonetheless you're not allowed to complain about exactly where you are but man I would be surprised if you didn't have a few complaints about what it took to do this series that you won the uh Polk award from I have to tell you I have so many questions about it but maybe to start, you can just quickly give me a summary of it. And then and then I'll get into all my, all my questions about your various complaints.
1: Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate it, Max. So the Amazon rainforest is the most important tropical rainforest in the world. And it holds an estimated 123 billion tons of carbon. And what that means is that if the Amazon goes bust, that's going to destabilize dramatically the climatic balance of the world. Any sort of hopes that the world would have of curbing catastrophic global warming would be undone. That's bad news because the Amazon's on the brink. The belief is if about 20 to 25% of the Amazon is lost, that will then unleash sort of destabilizing climatic forces that will claim much of what is remaining. As of now, about 18% of the Amazon has been knocked down. And so scientists warn and believe that, and we're already seeing that dramatic change is happening in the forest and signs of extraordinary signs of distress. And so it's not just the climactic models that are showing that the Amazon's on the brink. It's just people's lived experiences in the forest. The forest today is a hotter, smokier, drier place and virtually anyone living there can recall. And so the idea was to look at each sort of different system or mechanism that is driving the destruction of the Amazon and do a story about it. Whether that is, you know, what is the driving force of deforestation? One of them was beef. You know, this worldwide desire for beef is killing the forest. How, how is it that we've lost so much forest and people continue to knock it down? So, you know, we looked at like impunity in the Amazon and how it is that people continuously get away with environmental crime. So that is the way I try to think of these stories when I got into it, was how are we going to tell a climate story as a true crime story?
0: That's such an interesting way to hear you articulate it, because I think when I started reading it, I assumed that it was more traditional climate change reporting. The first story in the series kind of breaks down how the rainforest works ecologically, you know, but... Pretty quickly, it becomes a human story. And to hear you describe it as a true crime story, that sounds totally right, which is like, this is not some giant thing that is just happening. It is not related to massive industrial factors that you can't really pin on any certain group of people. It's really personal. Yeah. And so...
1: I mean, ultimately, how the Amazon got to this place is a story of intent. It's not happenstance. It wasn't that the Amazon force unwittingly went down this path. It has come to the brink of uh, existential crisis as a result of intentional policy choices, nearsighted policy choices the, the Brazilian government put into play. With the assistance of international financial groups, And with the acquiescence of international diplomatic groups Hmm. and and unleashed this sort of Hobbesian type environment in the Amazon where anything goes. The Amazon has always been this impenetrable force that people thought was unconquerable. But, you know, what, what the Brazilians did and what the world did along with them was open up the force just enough to be able to get inside it. But not, and they didn't put enough resources in to be able to maintain order. So it became quickly very chaotic. Terrain and violence erupted as a result of that, the absence of the state, as a result of a lack of order. And so it becomes a very personal story, and becomes a very sort of biblical struggle over land. Uh, you know, the, 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 the animating themes of how many. Conflicts throughout the human history is is happening right now in the Amazon Ultimately, comes down to blood and land and and that's the Amazon
0: The way that you are talking about it the clarity with which you see that biblical struggle Did you have that before you started this series? I mean you've been the bureau chief in Rio for several years How much of this was clear to you before you started the reporting and how much did it clarify as a process of the reporting?
1: None of it was clear. None of it was clear. I mean, the Amazon, when I first got to Brazil, the Amazon was uh, an arena of, you know, mystique. You know, you think about, I didn't even understand that it was beef, you know, cattle ranching that's destroying the forest. But after you spend a fair amount of time in the Amazon, it becomes quite clear what struggle is and, and how human that struggle is. Um, People in Brazil oftentimes are afraid of violence, but people are particularly scared of violence in the Amazon because the threat is very real, because they know people who have been killed, because they have suffered threats themselves, because the land that they live on might be a tenuous situation that could ultimately be undone by some sort of bigger boss that wants their land and is threatening them. It's the same themes of what we see, you know, in the 1850s in the Wild West. This is what it is today. And the same sort of struggles and themes that we saw there between indigenous communities, opportunists, gunslingers, ineffective policing, all of that is happening today, right now, in the Brazilian
0: Amazon. And I wonder how, for you walking into this vast sort of biblical story, how did you manage what must have felt like very real risks to you personally. I mean, people are killing each other over this land. They're killing each other over the knowledge of what's happening on this land. What did that feel like for you? I mean, I, how, how'd you get over that?
1: Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've been reporting on the Amazon and these issues for two years and it went from blithe ignorance to terror, frankly. You know, there are a couple moments that I, the situation was far riskier and more perilous than I recognized at the time. Can you tell me about one of those? Yeah, so the, the story of the Amazon ultimately is a story of, of highways, believe it or not. Highways are, are what opened up the Amazon beyond just the sort of fluvial rivers that, that go through. And right now, they're trying to build a highway called BR319. And this highway would cleave a path through the most conserved heart of the Amazon forest that remains. And if that part of the forest falls, it is going to be death, according to the scientists, for the rest of the forest. Anyway, so they want to build this highway. And they have the highway's been built, but it's a terrible, awful condition. They want to be able to pave it. And so I was going to do this story where I'm going down the highway, which is like the worst highway in Brazil. Um, and with it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Five, 500 miles through. I mean, you might as well be on the surface of the moon.
0: It's, and it's also in places so rough that you can spin out and end up in the forest. I mean, the, yeah, it's barely a road for hundreds of miles.
1: Barely a road for hundreds of miles. Going through the densest rainforest that you know, exists on Earth. There's nowhere to get gas. So you gotta, you got to lasso all of your gas barrels to the, to the back of your truck as you go down this highway. So it's really sort of like this, you know, uh, heart of darkness type journey into the unknown. And so I was going to go with this scientist, this sort of driving crusading scientist named Lucas Véhanch. And we were originally going to go, but he canceled. And he said, I'm coming under a lot of death threats right now. And I can't go because if I go, I worry it's going to put the entire team at risk because when ambushes happen, they're not just going to be taking down me, they're going to be taking out the entire team. And sometimes, you know, I've come to believe that, you know, sometimes people will almost overstate the danger to try to, you know, make it seem like they're tough. And so I, I personally felt like it would be a fine. And I talked to the photographer and he's like, yeah, I should be okay. And so, uh, but anyway, we, we, months go by, we ultimately are able to reschedule this journey at a time when he felt like his situation had calmed, it was safer. But even then, he was like, people know me on this highway. I have been advocating against paving this highway for years. And this has put him in the crosshairs of a lot of very strong economic interests, not just of very wealthy people, but very poor people who say, we need this highway to be able to survive. Mm-hmm. And we got this scientist, this tree hugger over here trying to stop it. And so that sort of controversy had made him an enemy for a lot of people. And he's an abrasive guy. He's not afraid to tell people off.
0: Writing op eds, accusing the. Yeah. Sure. Treason. And yeah, I mean, like, uh, he's pissing people off. Pissing people off. And
1: so, but we go down the highway anyway. He's wearing a mask. You know, at that point, COVID had really receded here, but he's wearing a mask the entire time because he's like, not to protect me from COVID, but to protect my identity. And um, at some point, I got to admit, at some points I thought he was kind of paranoid. But, you know, ultimately we go down the highway and it was extraordinarily remote. I, at one point, was driving the truck down the highway at night and I was like, how the hell did I get here? And, um, you know... And and but we, we ultimately go down the idea of this this guy's journey, this scientist journey was to try to investigate deforestation that's happening on the sideway. And there's this one path that was leading off into the distance, uh, just kind of cutting into the forest. And you pass a lot of them as you go, and each one is like sort of a passageway into illegal deforestation.
0: These are just and these are just little like dirt side roads.
1: Dirt side roads that like, you know, might have the distance that you can get a truck down. But their first was hacked in the forest with a machete, they're called picadas, and that means like a little bite. And they're hacked in the forest with a machete, but they get bigger and you ultimately get a truck down. And we find this one and Lucas, the scientist, like this is new, you know, this is illegal deforestation. We gotta go down here and see what's going down. And keep in mind, these are criminals, armed groups that are doing this deforestation. They have a lot to lose. And I remember, you know, at that moment, I was like, this is seeming intense. Um, (laughs) That was the moment where you were like, this is seeming intense? Yeah, I was like, like, this is getting intense. And the driver, I remember so clearly, he said, you know, we're entering the zone of risk, is what he said. It doesn't really translate exactly in English. But he's like, we're entering the risk zone, is what he said. And and he's like, we shouldn't go do this. But Lucas is such a driving figure. He's like, we got to go find out what's happening. So we go down there and we find just this all this deforestation back there. You know, they're trying to build these farms, there's little settlements. And Lucas is trying to record all this information of what's happening, what's going on, all the illegality. And he gets it all down and we're leaving. And as we're leaving, the photographer, Rafael, he sees a great frame for photo, he thinks, of like all these vultures on the top of a fence, a wooden fence. So he gets out to be able to capture this moment. And I'm getting out, I got out too, I was talking to Lucas about whatever, I forget. And all of a sudden we hear the screams. And I was like, what the what's good, what was that? And it was Rafael, and he comes racing back towards us. And he's like, I found a body. I found a body. His hands are tied. He's been executed. And so we go over there to where it was, and sure enough, there's this man there who had apparently been killed days before. And his hands were tied in front of him as if he was like in prayer. And he'd been murdered and just left there on the side of the, uh, on the, side of the ditch in the back in this sort of illegal area. And so we freak out and, and we all run back to the car and we don't know what to do. We know that like, you know, we're in sort of somebody's area. And if they catch us finding a body that possibly this person had killed in the area, you know, that would be bad news for us. So we start trying to, like, get out of there, you know, get down the road as quick as we could. I remember so clearly that, like, we see this motorcycle coming toward us with two guys. And keep in mind, like, Latin America is a place where you never want to see a motorcycle with two guys. And, and I remember Lucas telling the driver, he's like, no matter what you do, don't stop. Just drive. And uh, we just keep on driving, and we drive past those two guys. And luckily, they don't turn around. And after that, we're like, what are we gonna do right now? Like, we have to report this to somebody, to the authorities. But we were in a place of the jungle, a place of the force that is in the control of criminals. So it became this heated argument in the car of like, what are we gonna do? And I, I remember saying like, you know, we ha- this man's family has no idea where he is. And, and Rafael, the photographer's like, we have to be able to tell people. So we ultimately did come up with some sort of system where like, Lucas, he was gonna make the call to the police, but through an anonymous tip line that, like, there's a body out there. And I was with him. He makes the call. The cops are like, thank you. You know, we'll go check it out. And then I go back to my room. You know, we're at a hotel at this point. It's been hours later. We had a, and I get a call a little bit later. And he's like, Lucas tells me, I'm in the back of a police car right now. I'm going out at the cops to find the body. Holy shit. And I was like, are you sure you wanna do this right now? Because we'd spent the entire afternoon being like, we can't trust the police. And he said he just didn't have any choice the police called him they said you got to go with us so he goes back with them into the deep forest to find this body in the middle of the night i remember like Rafael, the photographer and i were like what (laughs) this is insane like we even thought like should we leave town but then leaving town means we'd have to get back on the highway and it just didn't feel safe so we just kind of you know hung out and you know mercy of mercies ultimately the cops brought back lucas And what happened was the guy that we found, he had been a key witness in an ongoing murder investigation. A a farmer had gone missing, and the last person to see him alive had been the guy that we had found. And he had disappeared himself shortly after he told what he told the police. What he told police was that our boss had been killing his workers, and the guy who had gone missing was one of the dead. Right. And so, as a result of this discovery, the cops ultimately went and tried to f- capture this allegedly murderous land grabber who had been killing people. The guy is actually on on the loose. The cops weren't able to get him. He's now a fugitive. But they got into this pitch gunfight with his lead pistolero, his lead gunslinger, and they're killing the the pistolero. And this is just this is my first story in the series I was doing on the Amazon.
0: You just thought you were writing about the road.
1: (laughs) I was just writing
0: about the road, exactly.
1: And also, we're in the middle of this, like, uh, there's a gunfight that happened, you know, uh, uh, the police were telling me this guy was a serial killer, and I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. And with every passing story, it got more terrifying. Did you consider quitting? Um, my wife was pregnant at the time. You know, uh, so I mean, like I was doing these stories and my wife was like very pregnant and I was like going off and into the jungle to report all this. And it got, you know, it, it I felt like these stories were so important um, and and the sense of mission strengthened when uh, my friend and colleague, Dom Phillips, a courageous journalist himself, was out reporting in a very remote area of the forest, and he was murdered. And that happened in June. And so I remember sitting at my desk afterwards and just thinking, I just wanted to to finish out the series and do it right as some sort of tribute to, to the work and life that he had led.
0: I know that Dom was a, a good friend of yours and I'm so sorry for your loss I'd love to know a little bit more about what the experience of doing that reporting of the murder was like knowing that you had more reporting in this series left to do that you were going to put yourself in some situation yeah that could have the same kind of stakes um I mean it was uh it was horrific
1: it was it was horrific um I remember when Dom went missing. I had been to that area of the forest. I knew how remote it was. I knew that there's no cell signal out there at all. There's no internet out there at all. What's scariest to me is about the Amazon. So covering war is extremely dangerous as well. It's a different type of danger in the Amazon because when you go into the Amazon, it's almost like you're heading into the abyss. Right. And how easily you can disappear was something that I thought of a lot. And how I saw that man fit into that ditch and nobody was going to find him unless we saw him. And how small we are as people. And I'm even, you know, tall. I'm like six feet tall. But how small I could fit into any sort of nooks and crannies, mm-hmm. he'd never find me. And I thought about um, how horrific it was for his, for Dom's family to know that, you know, he was gone. just disappeared. Um, but I wanted to believe that it was going to be okay. But then that night, he still hadn't come back. So I started messaging a lot of people. And so an attorney for the lead indigenous organization out there, the indigenous organization who Tom was working with when he disappeared, his name was, the attorney's name was Alessio. And I said to Alessio, I was like, what do you think happened? And Alessio for him, he, he'd been traveling with an armed guard for years. Hmm. And, and he said, you know, without even hesitation, he's like, they suffered an attack for sure. And so I called another f- person I knew, Orlando, Bos- Bosuelo. And he told me that, you know, not only did he think that they suffered an attack, he was virtually sure that Dom and, and Bruno were gone. And he told me he was the last person to really see him alive. Hmm. And so I knew what had happened before a lot of people did. and But I also knew Dom. And I knew his wife, and I felt compelled, like I had to write something, but I also couldn't write anything before I told his wife that, you know, uh, Dom probably wasn't coming home. And so I called Alain, and, uh, you know, it's a conversation that I still think about. Um, And I had to tell her, you know, um, what had happened. And she didn't want to believe it, you know, she didn't want to believe it she said you know the image that she couldn't get out of her mind and you know was that dom was out there somewhere and he was injured and you know she couldn't get to him to help him and um you know it just like hit me so hard because like i you know you can't help but think of your own family Hmm. because i was doing a lot of the same work and so like i you know Honestly, I remember I just got off the phone and I just cried. I just cried. Um, it was really difficult going through that and seeing, you know, what happened to Ale and to Dom. So, um, but I wrote the story and the revelations were far worse than I had ever imagined they would be. So Dom and Bruno Pereira, who is the man he's traveling with a gifted uh, source who I had talked to for years as well. They weren't just killed, you know, they weren't just disappeared. They had been disposed of. They had been burned, their bodies burned. They had been, after that, dismembered. And then they had thrown the remains of their body into a hole in the middle of the forest where the killers thought they'd never be found. And I can't imagine anything, you know, more horrific to do to someone. And so this was the, the reality of what had happened to these people. And not just to people, but to, you know, a gentle, sweet man like Dom Phillips, who was doing a story that he thought was trying to do good in this earth. Hmm. He's trying to write about how to save this natural resource that we all need.
0: And this is, was, his, was his end. I can't imagine it's easy to talk through this even after writing about it. And I appreciate your doing so. It seems impossibly tough in so many different ways and also it contains all of these themes and ideas that are in the series the vastness of this land the stakes how personal it is and how violent it can be it's all in that story you just told
1: yeah it was um you know, so many of the themes that we see in the Amazon and how it's been pushed to the absolute brink and the criminal dismantling of this forest were present in the killing of Dom and and Bruno. What had happened was that this place is called the Javari Valley and the Javari Valley is an extremely remote area of the forest. It has the largest concentration of uncontacted indigenous tribes in the world. Uh, These are people who have no contact with any sort of modern society. They just live in the forest like like it's been for millennia. And that's what makes it so precious. But it's also a place of extreme violence because um, the government for years here has tried to encourage migration all over the Amazon because the government has always been worried that more powerful countries was going to take the Amazon from Brazil. So the way that they thought about how we're going to claim this place is we're going to put a lot of people there, and then no one will be able to take it away from us. And so they encouraged a lot of migration out to this area, and a lot of people who were desperately poor all of a were thrust into the Amazon forest, into this area. And that created a lot of violence between the new settlers and the indigenous communities out there. And on one of these rivers, a river called Itakwai, in the middle of the Javari Valley, is where Dom and Bruno were killed. And this river has a very long history of violence. And a lot of the settlers came to live on this river, and they're invading the indigenous territory left and right, and coming out with all sorts of illicitly gained things that they would sell, you know, their pork too a lot of poaching, a lot of illegal fishing, things like that. And it created a lot of violence between these groups. And the way ultimately that the settlers would get rid of the indigenous is they would kill them and they'd bury them and they'd make them disappear and they'd never see them again. And so you see this culture that is kind of formed along these rivers and the people that killed Dom and Bruno were relatives of the same people who killed other other indigenous. I mean, it's a, it's the same sort of thing. And so when they killed Dom and Bruno, you know, they did what had been done in their community before. They got rid of the bodies and they thought no one ever come back to look because no one ever come back to look before. And the only reason it was different this time was because Dom was an international journalist. And so that that's the only reason it was different.
0: When you started reporting that story, you ended up going to the man who killed them, you went to both of his houses. And in one of them, you encountered his 19 year old son who in a way tried to make some sense of the history that you're explaining right now. It's an incredible scene. He's watching a like American movie dubbed in Portuguese And I couldn't help when I was reading it, just wondering what that moment was like for you to be sitting with the son of the man who killed your friend and what you were hoping you would get and how that lined up with what you did.
1: I mean, it was like one of the hardest interviews I had ever done, unlike any interview I'd ever performed in my life. You know, I so badly... Wanted to be angry in that moment and be a friend, you know, a friend who was mourning and in grief. But I also knew that I was a journalist in that moment. And I wanted to understand his worldview and his perspective to understand how this happened. So I just asked him the questions, you know, without getting too much into my backstory with Dom or anything like that. I just wanted to know why this happened. And what I learned was murder and violence can become ultimately so banal, so normalized that it can be justified to a certain extent. And in some communities in the Amazon, it's become extremely normalized. And his reaction was more or less like Bruno, who is like this um, indigenous activist, got what was coming to him more or less. He was investigating the wrong guys. And he didn't use the word investigating, he used the word persecuting he was persecuting the wrong guys my dad was being persecuted by this guy he's just a fisherman trying to survive and we had this indigenous activist persecuting him and murder is what happens when the wrong guy gets persecuted and he reacts with the wrong head, with a hot head is the quote that he gave i remember just being like this is it was beyond my cult, uh, ability of cultural understanding in a way it was like you know i understood what he was saying but it was just like there's no justification ever, ever for violence, ever for this ever. And and I so badly wanted to, you know, say that, but I was I just wanted to hear his thoughts about it. And so, but the thing I wanted to ask the most was like, Well, you know, Dom, he was just a reporter. Mm. He had nothing to do with this. He was just a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I was like, Do you regret at all the killing of Dom? And the son you know, paused for a long time. And he finally said, yes, but that's all he said. And so that was, you know, uh, a really troubling, I came away from that interview, like very, very disturbed, almost like quivering and shaking from what he you know, the apparent disinterest of this young, you know, a kid uh, who had always been raised in a culture like that.
0: For whom that kind of violence is just a fact yeah there were two other things in in your article about dom that stuck with me and one of them was a conversation you had with him in which he told you at the beginning of the pandemic when lots of expats were leaving brazil that he wasn't going anywhere because that was his home and the other was that the work he was out reporting the day he was killed was for a book that was not about the problems in the Amazon, but what the solutions might be. And I wonder what your relationship to both of those things are and how it is or isn't informed by Dom's death. I mean, is this the place that you are going to spend the rest of your professional life? And is there some way in which his focus and, looking for solutions, does that appeal to you after how you have so thoroughly documented the problems?
1: Yeah, Dom, you know, was a real gentle spirit. He was a real um, idealist and committed to the idea of justice. And so he had written about the problems for years. You know, journalists become jaded all the time. You know, they write about problems so much, they think there's no solution ever. But, you know, Dom wasn't that way. He always believed and hoped for a, a you know a, a more healthy environment. And so he wanted to write about that, about the solutions to the problem. And the tragedy of it was that he was, the reporting of the book was so near completion. This was like his last trip. And then he was gonna be done, he was gonna write the book. And um, that's when, when he was killed. And so, you know, I've been in Brazil for four years and I have unfortunately come into contact with not insignificant amount of violence and death. Um, I had a fixer who was murdered in 2019. It wasn't in relationship to a story we had done, but he, I, we worked very recently together, and he was you know, shot and killed in front of his family oh. um, by a bunch of hooded gunmen. And that was devastating as well. But at the same time... I love Brazil. I love its people. I love the country. I have a son who was born in Brazil, who is a little Brazilian. It is one of the most beautiful, special places on this earth, with an extraordinary people and an extraordinary spirit. And um, violence is one part of Brazil, but it's not the Brazilian story. I think you have to look at it more roundly than that. You know, Brazil is an extraordinary place. It's not just that.
0: Well, man, I wish you all all the luck in covering it. And um, I have a sense that having this conversation wasn't the easiest thing in the world. And and I um, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking about some really, really painful stuff. No, I I appreciate you um, taking the time for it. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. The editor of this episode was Susan Peterson. Thanks to her. Thanks to everyone at Vox with whom we make this show. Thanks to everyone at the Polk Awards, especially John Darton, with whom we made this week-long series. And thanks so much to Terry McCoy of The Washington Post. Go read the whole series. It's called The Amazon Undone.